Good day, everyone, and welcome to this special podcast on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. Well, if you want to stir up a spirited discussion in the state of Iowa right now, especially when it comes to the environment and agriculture, just mention one of the CO2 pipeline projects as proposed to cross the state. It was definitely a hot-button topic during the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit earlier this week in Des Moines, and it's continued to be one for the past several months. Navigator CO2 Ventures is one of the companies that is working to install a transport pipeline across the Midwest, with a large footprint of that project being here in Iowa. There's a lot of hard questions being asked when it comes to property rights, safety, environment, and also two of the most scary words in the agricultural industry in Iowa, eminent domain. I invite you to listen in now on my conversation with Navigator CO2 Ventures Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, Elizabeth Burns-Thompson, as we talk about some of those hard-hitting and very pressing questions that are being asked. Questions that Burns-Thompson says Navigator is not shying away from. So we've talked quite a bit in the past about the proposed Navigator CO2 pipeline that's going to be crossing the Midwest, including Iowa. And uh, first of all, let's start at where we're at here in, in February of 2023 on that project and, and how things are going. Sure. So we, we continue to make great progress. Um, many folks, uh, when we visited in the past, probably uh, heard about the project through the informational meetings um, in Iowa. Those are a kind of very critical part of working with the utilities board. Uh, we had done a bulk of those last winter. We also had another round of them uh, earlier this fall, um, at which point folks may have uh, come out and, and learned a little bit more about the project. Uh, we didn't kick off negotiating with landowners directly until probably right in the midst of harvest, uh, unfortunately for our timing there. But um, so, so there are a handful of areas where we're still working to get in front of folks, um, obviously a busy harvest season and then going into the holidays. But um, in large part, we've, we've started to, to be able to sit down um, and, and have conversations with landowners, um, their tenants and, and other kind of interested folks in the communities to start talking through, uh, you know, all the details surrounding the project, as well as getting into the weeds of what is in that easement agreement, uh, as well as the dollars and cents associated with compensation. Um, and so we've we've really been largely focused since, since um, the latter part of last fall um, on doing a bulk of that outreach, um, in addition to, to some of the permitting, obviously, stair steps that are necessary as we continue to move forward. Now, obviously, when we talk about uh, you know meeting with landowners and things like that, that is going to open up some discussion, and we're going to get to those topics in, in just a moment. But maybe for those who are new to what this is about or maybe are just hearing about it because they're hearing about it from somebody else, maybe explain what the CO2 capture pipeline is, what it's going to do, and why it's, uh, why it's considered important for the ethanol industry to, to be a part of this. Sure. So at its core, um, you know, it necessarily will be uh, quite a bit of pipe. I think we've got about 800 miles of pipe proposed across the state of Iowa as part of a, a 1,300 plus mile uh, piece of infrastructure. Uh, but to say it's just a carbon pipeline, I think, would be to oversimplify what is being proposed. Uh, you'll hear me talk about this as a carbon management platform, and that truly is what not only we look to build, uh, but also what is needed by our shippers and, and by our shippers. Uh, largely, those are ethanol facilities. Uh, we do also have a large ammonia facility represented on our line down in the, the far southeast corner of the state of Iowa. Uh, but what this is looking to do is, is solve the transportation challenges associated with, with CO2 or carbon right now. Um, you know, connecting where we have an abundance of, of CO2 uh, with areas where we can either sequester that 
and or potentially uh, utilize that. Predominantly, those those utilization sectors uh, to date are dry ice, uh, food and beverage, think the, the bubbles in your, your Diet Coke or Mountain Dew, um, and, and the livestock processing sector, specifically in, in the hog um, arena. But uh, when you look at the demand that exists in that space, uh, that, that really is a small fraction of the supply at which the of CO2 will ultimately be transported on these lines. And thus, having those diverse uh, end markets or end destinations for that CO2 is, is necessarily important. So we are looking to build out, um, you know, a pretty broad scale piece of infrastructure that that allow for these these shippers, again, those ethanol plants, fertilizer facilities, and, and maybe future processors down the road as well, uh, to be able to, you know, market and transport their CO2 just as a, a valuable commodity or byproduct of their manufacturing processes, just, just like anything else that's come out of, coming out of those facilities. And you talked about how the, the, the carbon is being utilized. And, and so explain to us how it's shipped around now and why it's important to, to upgrade uh, to this kind of a pipeline system. Sure. So uh, at its core, you know, carbon, I think also twofold that, you know, carbon is, is necessarily a quantifier of the value on products that are coming to market, uh, be that a, a bushel of grain, a gallon of ethanol or, or other products um, services. And so we, we do operate under a, a carbon economy of sorts. And so making sure that we're developing and involving our manufacturing processes and our transportation processes that meet that that value demand or that value sector is important. Now, largely, you're looking at from a transportation perspective, how do you best handle and manage, you know, pressurized liquid CO2? Right now, that's predominantly moving by truck um, as a as a pressurized liquid uh, up and down our roadways. Uh, if you were to put in comparison what is what ultimately would would be required to move the amount of uh, liquefied CO2 that will be just on our project alone. Uh, it would necessitate about 450,000 trucks or, um, as another corollary, excuse me, about 110,000 rail cars. Uh, we just don't have that type of infrastructure out there today to, to facilitate, um, you know, that much traffic, um, both on, on roads or by rail. And largely also when you're looking at not only from an efficiency and effectiveness, uh, trans- from a transportation perspective, but from safety, pipelines have time and time again proven themselves as the safest means of transporting many different types of energy and, and liquid products um, and, and CO2 much the same. Now, you also talked about, you know, sequestering uh, this carbon. Uh, tell us uh, how that uh, end game is, is reached uh, through a project like the pipeline. Sure. So the sequestration uh, part of it, we will be building out the injection wells associated with sequestration in central Illinois. Uh, what's unique about central Illinois is it's one of the few areas around largely the Corn Belt uh, where you find the type of geology to the size and scale necessary for this type of activity. So so you don't, the, what many don't realize, just in large part it's underground, right, that, that we have similar geological layers throughout the United States, but they're not the same in size and scale. And so you have to find an area that both has the sandstone um, region uh, deep underground that, that has porosity that can take the CO2 um, and necessarily also a, a shale uh, cap rock of sorts. Think of that kind of the top uh, of that that makes sure that the CO2 can't percolate effectively back up out of the ground. Um, you really have to find specific areas that allow for that. And so um, Illinois is one of those. The other unique thing about Illinois is they've proven that they can do this. 
I think what, what most folks uh, don't realize is if you've ever made the trip over to the Farm Progress Show and it's been there in Decatur, you were actually standing on top of an operating carbon capture project the entirety of that time. Um, ADM at their, their ethanol plant there in Decatur has been taking the CO2 off of their fermenters and sequestering it or injecting it underground for the better part of a decade. That is exactly what we are looking to do, um, you know, at a much larger scale so that the ethanol industry as a whole has the opportunity to benefit from this type of technology. All right. And so with the carbon dioxide being put back underground, I mean, obviously the, the biggest problem we, we deal with is the carbon dioxide. And the concern is the carbon dioxide that's released into the air. You're talking about putting it back into the ground. Obviously, with Earth being full of carbon-based life forms, the reintroduction of the product back into the Earth itself has to have some benefit for, for storing it there rather than just letting it float away. Sure. And when we're looking at the, the, the nature of the CO2, we are capturing the what they call biogenic CO2. So the CO2 that otherwise is in large part being vented at many of these, these ethanol plants and ammonia facilities off of either their fermenters or, or that process point in their facility where they vent the CO2. Um, by capturing that and, and transporting it uh, and, and permanently sequestering it underground, I should say, you reduce the ultimate carbon or CI points associated with not only that end gallon of ethanol, but that end pound or ton of, of everything else that's coming out of that facility. So you're reducing the carbon score and thus improving the economic value potential of that gallon of ethanol, of that ton of ZDG, of that pound of corn oil. Um, so there really is kind of a multiplier effect, not just in, in the fuel itself, but also all of the co-products that are coming out of those facilities that also are then being fed into either further processing, uh, a lot of that corn oil, you know, further going into biofuel production, be it biodiesel or renewable diesel, um, and, you know, ZDG being a, a critical input into livestock rations, which are also being, you know, uh, um, I should say you know, part of, of consumer feedback is right being responsive to um, the requests and, and demands of the marketplaces and, and markets do continue to demand you know, carbon-based metrics on the goods and services we're bringing to market. And that, that's, that is far beyond just the fuel sector as well. All right. So I think we've got it now a better understanding for those, like I said, who are new to the topic of what this pipeline and what the, what the goal is of, of, of this kind of project. Now let's kind of get into the things that I'm sure people are going to want to be hearing about. And of course, uh, two words that always get thrown around a lot and almost as a scare tactic sometimes in Iowa agriculture, but obviously a real concern is eminent domain. And of course, that comes down to how is the land easements going to be run? How are, uh, what, what, what kind of protections are there for the people who own the land where this proposed project is, is uh, proposed to go through? Uh, you know, what, what kind of things are you guys doing to assuage the, the, the situation? And what kind of discussions are you having with people who are quite, and quite rightfully so, concerned with their land rights? Absolutely. And, and it's a very good question, Dustin. And I, I'd say I start by, we, we don't shy away from conversations about the topic. Um, in fact, generally, if, if we're having a meeting with someone and they don't bring it up, I will proactively bring it up so that they know that, that we, we want to talk about property rights. We want to talk about the processes associated with it. And we want to be able to have the opportunity to also highlight our commitment to property owners, property rights, as well as land restoration and our commitments throughout that process. Um, I think it's unfortunate to the, the way that um, eminent domain or condemnation has been uh, misrepresented or portrayed uh, largely by project opponents um, and, and not just project opponents to, to CO2 infrastructure, project opponents to, to really development of a lot of infrastructure. At its core, right, when you break down the fundamental process of eminent domain, 
It does not save us, the company, time. It does not save us money. Both of those largely a function of it introduces a legal process, um, which is a lot of lawyers. And then thirdly, it doesn't make us any friends. And if you think about just the basic tenets of business operations, be it a pipeline company, be it the corner coffee shop, be it the co-op or an ethanol plant, right? All of us pretty uniformly in business want to optimize our time and our financial resources. And we generally like the people, you know, the people we're doing business with to like us. At its foundation, we are incentivized to do this as much as humanly possible in a voluntary fashion, if only for pure business purposes. And so I think, I think it's important to kind of point that out. Um, additionally, we realize that there's a lot of questions about, you know, how do you go about negotiating um, an easement? What's, what is within the easement? And I, I'd also highlight that, uh, you know, negotiation is more than just dollars and cents. Uh, when we sit down and visit with with a landowner or, or a group of landowners in some cases, because some folks like to negotiate as a group, um, you know, we're talking about not just, um, you know, the, the dollars and cents associated with compensation. It's where we lay the pipe, right? So how, how do we potentially maneuver and do route adjustments about where the line is currently on the map and maybe where it could elsewhere be? Um, there's negotiating on how we how we go about installation of that, how we go about land restoration. All of those are key tenants associated with the negotiation process and things that, that I would encourage landowners to incorporate when they're having conversations with our land team. Now, one thing that is uh, another question, of course, is this is a concern, and like again, rightfully so. When when farmers are looking at something like this, it's what is it going to do to my land? You know, after I would give the okay, let's say I'm going to give the okay, what's it going to do to my land? You're going to dig up some of my dirt. You're going to go in there. And now what assurance do I have that I'm not going to lose productivity, that there's not going to be uh, irreparable damage in that area to where if I want to farm over the top of it again once this, this project is put in place? I mean, what steps are, are, is, is uh, Navigator taking to help assuage those fears as well and, and, and make sure that they're respectful of the land that they're running that pipeline under? Absolutely. And I think we also we, we, we bear the burden of, of operators of the past as well. So proactively differentiating ourselves from, you know, pipeline developers that have come before. I think it's also highlighting where the rules have been changed and adjusted from the state's perspective. So, uh, you know, we don't put in, we as a, as a state or as a society, don't put in big large scale infrastructure interstate pipelines, you know, each and every day. These are, these are big projects that come around maybe every five to 10 years. Necessarily, there are updates to construction best practices. There are also updates to the regulatory processes in place. And so I think it's important to highlight that, um, you know, just because a, a developer may be uh, instituted processes in a certain way, the state of Iowa specifically is a great example of that. They have updated their, their Chapter 9 regulations. Um, that is the part of the code that specifically outlines uh, ag land restoration specifically. Those have been updated multiple times since the most recent uh, Dakota Access uh, oil pipeline that went through here a handful of years ago. I think also highlighting that you know landowners have the ability to negotiate above and beyond right what they put in the terms of that easement agreement or that independent agreement is 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 a scope of, of what they can can you know negotiate of where we can do things differently or where they would like to see things done differently I think also as a as a showing of good faith uh, we've incorporated into our compensation structure uh, proactive compensation for yield loss. So in addition to the, the dollars and cents associated with the easement, so the right of access or the right of being able to put the infrastructure in initially, uh, we've also have 
uh, a landowner would see this in our kind of compensation worksheet that, you know, the first box is necessarily associated with the compensation on that easement. The second box is necessarily, you know, proactive compensation for yield loss. So we're paying out 250% upfront, whether or not a landowner even reaches 250% of yield loss. Now, I also want to caveat that we are responsible for the impacts of the construction and operations of our pipeline. So if a landowner were to experience yield loss beyond that 250% at any point in the life of the project, we are also responsible and commit to, to make that landowner whole. Largely, if you're reaching yield loss of, of 250 or beyond, there's probably something that's more deeply rooted that went wrong in restoration that we need to get to the root or the bottom of um, and make sure that that's, that's further repaired as opposed to, you know, just paying yield loss in perpetuity, we want to make sure that we're making long-term uh, repairs and fixes as well. And then the last piece of that compensation sheet necessarily incorporating any and all other damages, right? There are there are plenty of, of tile lines that I know are going to need to be fixed as a result of this project. There are plenty of fences that are going to need to be fixed. There are areas where we may need to um, you know, move or segregate livestock off of the pasture during during right-of-way construction and such. And so just a, another catch-all place where we make sure that we're, we're truly making landowners whole based on the impacts of not only construction but also operations of the project. All right. And, and going back, I forgot I should ask this uh, Should ask this follow-up when we were talking about eminent domain and things like that. So you obviously the negotiations are different. They're private situations and contracts with your landowners. But let's go with a hypothetical situation. Let's say you've got a, 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 an area of this pipeline that you've negotiated and you've got an agreement you know, with the landowners along this section. But let's just say there is a holdout in that situation that says, hey, I'm just not for this. I mean, what is... The scope, because like you said, eminent domain is not a process that's cheap and and not giving you any fans in the future as well. So, I mean, what kind of a thing does do do you guys want to do? I should say, what kind of direction do you want to go if you get that kind of a holdout? I mean, how do you move forward and and try to, uh, you know, make things better for both the landowners, uh, for the person who's holding out and, and for the company as a whole? I think it's really taking the time to visit with all the folks involved in that particular parcel. Um, land ownership, especially farm land ownership, gets to be very complex as you get uh, multiple generations, maybe uh, a, a wide swath of the family that has different ownership interests in land. So um, it's making sure you have all of the folks at the table as, as you're part, as you're per saying through those, those conversations. But at the end of the day, we're looking to develop the safest infrastructure, both from the, the asset itself as well as the routing and, and, and operations. And so we will deviate, you know, on routing to the best of our ability and, and have flexibility on that as well. Uh, but at a certain point in time, you know, in, in linear infrastructure necessarily needs to be contiguous. And so, uh, you know, we will truly exhaust any and all options to make sure that we can reach voluntary agreements. Uh, but there are processes in place, not only in the state of Iowa, but really whole scale across the country that ensure that that you know, we can develop linear infrastructure, be that pipeline, be that railroad, be that road. Um, those are all critical assets to, to commerce and business and transportation, and, and they do necessarily need to be contiguous, you know, with a level of, of flexibility as we're working through routing. Again, I, I'd highlight that these are long-term type negotiations, right? These aren't, we don't go out and propose projects and, and then, you know, within a matter of days, <clears throat> come forward with, with finality. You know, we're working with landowners over the course of weeks and months in many cases uh, to make sure that we're, we're, we're 
working through all of their questions and all of their concerns because largely, you know, that could be much further and broader than just dollars and cents, right? There's an attachment and valuation to ground especially land that has been in families for generations that goes far beyond, um, you know, the number of zeros that are on a check. It's truly how you treat the land, how you treat the individuals that own the land, how you treat the individuals that operate the land, because think, you know, those are not necessarily one and the same in many cases where we have tenant operators, um, but, but absentee landowners. And so it's making sure that you're taking that holistic approach, really breaking it down into the why um, and questions that folks have and, and, and exhausting all, all opportunities and all alternatives um, as we go through negotiations and routing. All right. And so now switching gears, uh, of course, the next thing uh, that gets brought up as a concern with a project like this is obviously environmental impact. And of course, there are organizations out there that will jump at the first opportunity that as soon as you want to turn a spoonful of dirt for industry, or sorry, industrial or commercial uses that they are going to fight it. And of course, Pipeline sometimes has the negative connotation of what it means for environmental impact. I mean, obviously, that argument is, is valid. You want to make sure that you're doing right by the environment. So tell us about what steps Navigator is taking to make sure that they're environmentally responsible with a project like this as well. Absolutely. And, and I'd say that, you know, this while, while at the end of the day, everybody participating in these projects is a business, so it must necessarily also stand on an economic driver or economic leg, we also very much stand on on the environmental drivers and, and stimulants of this project for the function of, of really what what's what's putting forth it putting forth the project to begin with, right? Driving down the carbon scores associated with, with both the gallons of ethanol as well as the other byproducts. Um, but but that um, environmental stewardship is is tenants that are found really throughout the project development, you know, not only from the core of, of what the project's looking to do, but how we go about it. Um, and one example I'll highlight is the necessary, you know, steps associated with survey work. So I think folks also think about surveys from a very simplistic perspective that we're just looking at kind of the physical lay of the land. That is one component of our survey work, uh, but one of many different components. So the surveys are, are very broad that we necessarily need to do, and they encompass other things like um, endangered species, uh, specific um, other environmental resources, wetlands. Um, there's a number of different environmental, environmentally, excuse me, focused survey work that provides technical input to our team as we're going out and, and proactively determining those corridors, you know, that, that necessarily come first before we go out and, and, and have those negotiations with landowners. Um, because it's important for us to know those, those technical components before we can go out and then, you know, negotiate and, and potentially side a line. Um, we, we need that guidance up front. And that's also critically important to a number of the, the permits that we also navigate through with the EPA, Fish and Wildlife, um, Army Corps of Engineers, as well as, you know, the state level siding permits as well. Now, can you speak to anything that may have influenced that? I mean, going through that survey and environmental impact and all that, that may have, uh, you know, that navigator maybe encountered along the way to kind of give it an illustration as to the, the kind of steps that it takes to get this done? It's a good question. Um, pointing to, I think, I think the, I think I'd point to the fact that the, the, the survey work is is also um, one a, a critical guide to development of of um, value added infrastructure. 
and twofold that there's not necessarily a uniform one size fits all in terms of application. And so the types of you know species that that we're looking at necessarily you know change differing based on the landscape. So what we're looking necessarily for in, in Nebraska may be different than what we're looking for in you know the western part of Illinois. Um, and necessarily that also has a function of seasonality. Um, much like we have seasonality in, in, you know, the crops that we grow and the livestock that we raise, there too is, is seasonality in terms of, you know, nesting periods of specific species. So that survey work does necessarily need to take place, you know, based on some of the seasonality components of that. So the complexity associated with the survey work, I, I think, is is also um, a point to, to highlight and, and the further kind of making sure that you have that technical technical details and technical information to make sure that you're routing uh from a pro- proactively from the, the best positioning and the best information possible. So when we talked earlier about, you know, getting those landowner contracts and what goes into that, obviously by having that easement, it gives you access to do work on the line should obviously uh, maintenance need to be done in perpetuity throughout the life of the project. Uh, you know, obviously no one's signing a contract for Mother Nature, uh, you know, and people are, and you have a responsibility in perpetuity to her, you know, as far as, you know, making sure that maintenance is done and, and what possible, you know, side effects could come from a project like this. I mean, what kind of things is Navigator planning for in the future and also maybe trying to look ahead for so they can mitigate any problems later down the road? Sure. So so looking ahead is a key part of this project um, and looking ahead not only from a uh, liabilities perspective, uh, looking ahead to ensure that the value of the asset remains intact, right? So the value it's providing to the marketplace and ensuring, you know, from a from a long-term perspective that, that what we're doing is, is meeting the criteria and components of, of our permit to what we're committing to. So um, I'll break down a couple of these, one of them being, you know, long-term liability. Those that, that are on our project footprint will have seen in the easement agreement um, there is a section in there specifically indemnification. Basically, in those, the, the handful of sentences as part of that section, it outlines that we, as the pipeline operator, maintain the liability for the safe operation, well, construction and operation of that project and of that asset. So um, questions about, you know, further landowner liability, um, you know, we necessarily take that liability up. Uh, on behalf of the landowners. So there should not be concerns about whether or not landowners have the ability to continue to get insurance on, on their property. We have had pipelines all across the United States, all across the state of Iowa for decades. Um, and CO2 pipelines across the Midwest as well, as close as Kansas and North Dakota. And, and those properties have continued to be able to get insurance. And, and, and um, we wanna make sure that we're, we're holding, holding our landowners harmless as well. Um, when you're looking at kind of the, the longer term purview on the project, too, we want to make sure that we're developing an asset that can, can meet the compliance pieces of our permit. So part of uh, the EPA permit for the injection wells is ensuring and safeguarding that that CO2, when it's injected underground, stays underground. That's in large part why you, you look for areas that have the geology to help provide for that. Uh, we also institute different um, engineering pieces to, to further monitor. So if, if folks look up uh, kind of our design specifications, we have a lot of this stuff on our website. I would encourage, encourage visiting the, the Heartland Greenway website to, to learn more. Uh, but you'll see on that diagram that we, we, when we do an injection well, you have one particular well associated with injection, but you'll also install a number of other injection or a number of other wells at varying depths that are just in place to ensure that basically from a monitoring perspective to make sure that that CO2 
is effectively staying put. That is a necessary piece of, of compliance under the EPA permit. That's also necessary for, for our shippers because they are committing when they're selling these end products into these value-added markets that they've truly reduced the carbon score associated with that product. By doing that, that basically means that they're not reducing the, or that they're not emitting that CO2 into the atmosphere. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that their CO2 is staying underground if, it's, if it is ultimately destined for, for sequestration. And I think the, the, the last piece I'll add onto that is, is you know, looking at um, viability in the long term. You know, we want to make sure we're building out an asset, like I said, that, that provides value now, five years from now, 15 years from now, and, and years after that. And that means making sure that it, 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 it's uh, dynamic. So, you know, you'll hear us talk a lot about the sequestration side of this project. Um, but we also think that, that CO2 can, and our shippers see CO2 as potentially being just as valuable of a commodity coming out of any of their, op- of their operations, as is any of the other co-products. And so, you know, as, as research and development continues to transpire and look at how we can further crack that CO2 molecule and turn it into maybe the next bio-based feedstocks for plastics or polymers or potentially the, the next wave of biofuels of the future, we do also necessarily need a, a viable transportation backbone to, to feed that infrastructure, to feed that development. And so we're, we're looking at how this can also feed kind of the, the bioeconomy and the development of the future, in addition to fulfilling the needs of today as well. All right, Elizabeth. And moving on to one last uh, component I know that gets brought up a lot, and that is safety of of the project. I mean, uh, those who are quite loud proponents against the project keep bringing up uh, a situation that happened a few years back in, in the Gulf Coast region. I can't remember if it was Mississippi or Louisiana, about a pipe rupturing. Uh, talk about, you know, obviously things have changed. We don't have the same technology on any scale that we had years ago. So, I mean, talk about that. Maybe speak to the safety concerns that have been brought up and and what navigators saying about those absolutely and our team has uh has read through the the FEMSA, which FEMSA is the, the pipeline and hazardous material safety administration uh that's the federal entity housed within our U- u.s department of transportation that entity oversees pipelines hazardous materials holistically across our country uh they put out a, a pretty robust uh a report on the, the incident in Satarsha back in 2020. Our teams have read that from start to finish. In addition to that, we've also incorporated not only industry lessons learned from that particular incident and what FEMSA specifically pointed out there, but also we can learn from the successful operations of the 5,000 plus miles of CO2 pipelines that have been in operation across the country and really around the world for decades. And we're instituting those lessons learned into our development and, and construction operations plans as well. Um, in addition, I think folks may have also seen um, a, a video and there's a test structure, <coughs> excuse me, that was done by an entity, University Veritas, DNZ. Um, that is an indep- independent third party kind of research certifying entity. We've also worked very closely with them to incorporate their industry lessons learned from their work in, in monitoring kind of plume dispersions, um, concentrations of CO2, best practices as it relates not only to the capture, but also the transport as well as the sequestration, all critical component pieces of this project. We're proactively incorporating many of those things into, into our development. Um, I think uh, what I specifically point folks to, we've, we've outlined that in a pretty succinct uh, document on our website. We call it the safety exceedances chart. 
uh, that's been filed with our regulators as well. We hand that out in, in public meetings. What that document does is break down kind of the current Part 195, which is the federal regulation that CO2 pipelines are cited within, specifically supercritical or liquid CO2 pipelines. Um, we, we put the, the, the regulation on one side of the chart, and then on the right side of that, we've, we've listed specifically what the Navigator team is looking to do and institute as part of our Heartland Greenway project to go above and beyond in each of those different regulatory kind of compliance period and compliance uh, aspects. Well, Elizabeth, we have talked at length about this project, both talking about, uh, you know, where it's at, uh, environmental impact, land uh, use and, and safety. You know, before we wrap up here today, I mean, what is something maybe from a shortened 30,000 foot uh, viewpoint that the, the folks in Iowa, whether they be landowners, farmers or just people who are concerned about the future of our of the state and the land, water and air quality, what kind of message does does Navigator want to give to all those people in Iowa just to kind of uh, maybe put their mind at ease? I think that, that for many of us, we're developing, and I say this on behalf of our team, you know, many of us call Iowa home. I personally call Iowa home. Um, many of us live in, in, and operate and, and have families here across the Midwest, and so we're developing this, this project in many cases in our backyards as well. Uh, working with industries that, that mean a lot to us as well. I, I personally have worked in the ag industry all of my professional career. I've, I've personally worked on behalf of and for a number of, of the entities, both in the ethanol and the biodiesel and other processor space. So I have seen firsthand what having manufacturing and value-added manufacturing in our small communities means for you know the vitality of these areas. And I think it's also important to note that that you know, there's not stagnation in those spaces, right? Those facilities look very different than what they did when they first were, you know, when we cut ribbons on many of these plants, you know, many decades ago. They've continued to invest and optimize and add new tools and technology. This is just one more stepping stone in what has been and will continue to be the evolution of our biofuel and, and manufacturing sectors in, in rural America. All right. Well, Elizabeth, we thank you so much for your time. And it was quite a lengthy conversation, but I think a lot of uh, good information shared to maybe help get a get us a, a better understanding of what this project means for the future of Iowa and, and agriculture. We thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Always good to visit. Thanks, Dustin. That again was Navigator CO2 Ventures Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, Elizabeth Burns Thompson, joining me here on this special podcast edition on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Of course, you just need to search out Navigator CO2 Ventures if you want to make contact and talk to them about any questions or concerns you have concerning this project. Thank you for joining us here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag matters.